Hello, welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, a contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today's guest is Professor Jay Tidmarsh of the University of Notre Dame Law School. Professor Tismarch has been on the faculty at the University of Notre Dame Law School since 1989. He is one of the country's leading experts in civil procedure. He practices a trial attorney with the Torch Division at the Department of Justice. He's also been a visiting professor at the University of Michigan Law School and at Harvard Law School, from which he graduated. His case books are widely used in classrooms throughout the United States, both in civil procedure and his work in class actions. But we're talking to Professor Tidmarsh today as a guest on the podcast because of the remarkable work, historical work he's done on a special court established by Parliament in 17th century England. The Great Fire basically had a similar effect on the financial system, as we will talk about, as COVID is now having, especially on real property interests. And Parliament established a special court a special fire court to deal with those issues, and Professor Tidmarsh is, is an expert on how that fire court worked to resolve financial issues following what we can describe as a mass financial casualty. And the implicit question of what we'll be talking about is whether 17th century England and its parliament was really going to be, was, more successful in dealing with the complexities of the mass financial casualty than we may be today. Professor Tidmarsh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Howard. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with mid-17th century England. What happened to establish the base for what the Great Fire was and what it did? So, Tidmarsh, what happened in the Great Fire of London in 1666? So, uh, when the Great Fire occurs in September 1666, London is already in some difficult financial situations. There had been the last of the Great Plagues in London, uh, that from which London was still recovering in 1666. It had begun in 1665. In addition to that, the City of London had been engaged in deficit spending for quite some time. Its guild system was old and creaky and falling apart, and the income that would come into the city as a result of the guilds was uh, diminishing. Uh, much of the budget of the City of London was tied up in homes that it owned and then would lease. So uh, lease income was extremely important. Leases were also important to a range of financial interests in the City of London, uh, from the very rich to uh, uh, charitable institutions to just widows. Um, uh, this entire system of leasing in London really was because there were no banks as such at the time. Uh, the leasing system was one of the ways in which you could both um, put wealth and then continue to accumulate wealth over time so but the, the the background the background of the financial part the background of, of the financial harm is the amount of property that was physically destroyed in the great fire wasn't a substantial amount of the physical property Yes, it was. Um, so roughly four-fifths of the old walled city of London, what today you would call the, the city, when you hear, hear the city of London referred to as the city, it's the old city of London. Uh, so uh, from the Tower of London uh, all the way up to the Inner Temple, uh, if for those of you who know London well, uh, and basically north uh, to the old Roman wall, uh, roughly four-fifths of that land was destroyed. 
and with it, as you said, much of the wealth of London, much of the way in which they they held their wealth. Well, let's uh, relevance. Let's analogize this to the similarities of today as we talk about what Parliament did. I mean, we can describe it as a mass financial casualty, which is similar to what many businesses are going through today. We can describe it as having affected complex and important property disputes, which is happening today throughout all kinds of property, from residential property through commercial, industrial, every kind of property being affected by the inability of tenants to pay rent. So it's another mass financial casualty. And we have an existing system, just as in mid-17th century England, there was an existing legal system. So what would have happened? And today we, we are letting our problems be resolved by our normal common law and legislation. What would have happened in 1666 in London if the common law had simply been allowed to go its course with no special court or no special change in procedure? Well, the short answer is nothing good. Uh, and the reason why uh, is because the common law courts would have enforced the contracts for lease. So an average lease, uh, you know, we're used to thinking today about a lease being for a year or something like that. An average lease in London at the time would be for 30 or 40 years. Um, and uh, the common law courts uh, were going to enforce the leases according to their terms. Now, one of the most important clauses in any lease or covenant, as they were called back then, uh, in any lease uh, was that the person in possession would be required to repair and rebuild the property in the event of any damage that occurred, including damage from a fire. Uh, and you have to understand that so many of these leases pass through many hands, so the lease would be a 30-year lease, and then I would sublease it to someone who would sublease it to someone who would sublease it to someone, and every way along the way, we would take a little bit of money out of it. But ultimately, with each one of these leases, there would be a covenant, and ultimately, the obligation to repair would fall on the tenant who is in possession, who is often in a very poor position to be able to spend the hundreds of pounds that it would have taken to have rebuilt the property. So uh, the common law courts would not have released those tenants from their obligation to do so, even though it would have been difficult for them to have the financial resources to do so. This is before fire insurance, I should also add. In fact, it's the Great Fire of London, which first develops the uh, institution of fire insurance. Uh, so this fell right on on the, on the tenants themselves. But for our purposes and for our thoughts today, can, can we accurately say that if the common law had been applied without any special changes, that essentially the results were what we call a zero-sum game? Someone would have lost, someone would have won, it would have taken time, and London would not have been rebuilt as it was. I think that's right. That's a really good way to put it. It was, it was a zero-sum game, and almost all the risk was going to fall on the tenant in that game. So Parliament faces this, and the goal, and everyone recognizes the goal, is to rebuild London. So what does Parliament do? What law does it pass to deal with the inability, basically, I don't think that's too strong a word, the inability of, this thing, of the existing common law procedures to resolve this in a way that would permit the rebuilding of the city? What, what, what law did Parliament pass? So it passes to one of which doesn't really concern us. It's just it was a, an act for the rebuilding of London, which would specify basically uh, a, a brick 
buildings uh, with party walls of wider streets, uh, just essentially to try to reduce the risk of future catastrophic fire. The second act, though, and this is where the, the difficulty came in, you still had to give an incentive to people to rebuild. Um, I, I should mention, by the way, there's another half to this problem with the common law, and that is that if the landlord wanted to come in and rebuild, obviously the tenant may not have been in a position to do so, but the landlord couldn't just come in and rebuild because the landlord in doing so would have been subject to a common law action for ejectment or trespass. So um, so there was a, a real problem uh uh, with trying to figure out how to give the parties an incentive to rebuild. So it's the second act that's really the important act in terms of the rebuilding of London. What the second act does is it establishes a special court, uh, ever since known as the fire court. Uh, and that fire court is empowered to um, change the terms of the leases uh, between the landlords and the tenants to extend the lease term and to reduce the rent or to do whatever else would be appropriate in the circumstances. If the tenant didn't want to rebuild, then to uh, abolish the lease and give the property back to the landlord. Perhaps the tenant might have to pay the landlord some money in that process. But whatever, uh, the, the court had complete authority and power to rewrite the leases however it was appropriate in order to give incentives to the uh, the appropriate party to rebuild. And I should say the court had the power to extend leases by up to 40 years and to reduce rents by as much as it thought appropriate in order to provide an incentive for tenants typically to rebuild their properties. Well, I, again, to to make this relevant, to, to talk about this in terms of today's terms, then the issue was between landlord and multiple levels of tenants and a variety of financing issues. Today, uh, because of COVID, it, the, the issues are not only between landlord and tenants, which are severe and are being renegotiated constantly uh, in, in, or are not being renegotiated, as well as those insurance companies, but the existing system we now have is essentially the zero-sum game. Uh, the issues are being raised about property, uh, business interruption insurance uh, that will either be paid or not paid, similar issues about force majeure, uh, and, and other issues. So we face the same kind of situation as a long, drawn-out process that will make it very difficult to recover. So let's talk about, so you mentioned something about how the fire court worked, and the first thing that the fire court did was to essentially change the substantive rules uh, to the central two central principles. London has to be rebuilt, and the way to get that is to have a proportionate uh, burden falling on all parties concerned rather than simply someone winning or losing. Is that the essential principle? That's exactly the principle, and indeed the statute itself specifically said that the the purpose, of course, is to rebuild London. The way in which that's to be done is that both parties are to bear a proportionate share of the cost of rebuilding. And uh, that's on the substantive side. And then, of course, procedurally, they did some things as well to make this process run as quickly as possible. Well, before we turn to the procedure, just pause for a moment as we talk about this. Again, the analogy. I mean, 17th century London at this point, what's remarkable about this is it wasn't only dealing with this. As you said, the plague had previously come uh, very shortly before. It, it was coincidentally the plague that uh, was also in Cambridge that forced Sir Isaac Newton out of Cambridge and was the year he did his great work on, on, the, on the laws of physics. Uh, but the, so that just following a plague, 
in the midst of this financial disaster, and the country is also at war. At this point, uh, Great Britain is at war with, with the Dutch, aren't they? There's a war going on while this is all happening. There, there is, and there were daily rumors at the time that the Dutch might uh, sail up the Thames and invade uh, London. Um, the war was kind of at a tie at that point, but the tide was literally turning in the favor of the Dutch at this point. And so uh, among all of the other problems that are being faced is that Charles II, who's the king at the time, desperately needs money to fight his war. And one of the principal sources of his funding is going to be the city of London, uh, which as long as it remains unbuilt, uh, is going to seriously hamper his ability to fight the war with the funds that he needs. And to, again, analogize to what's happening today, uh, there were, we talk about animosity and, and deep divisions in the country today, but of course, Charles II has just come back on the throne following Oliver Cromwell. There still are huge divisions in, in the country over the, over the crown itself uh, and between those who wish to abolish it and those who supported the restoration. So this was a period of enormous conflict within the country as well as outside the country. And yet the 17th century parliament took decisive steps to deal with this issue. So tell us something more about, the first thing they did was change the substantive laws. And what did they permit in full range in terms of the substantive law in the court? Well, again, uh, they allowed the fire court uh, to extend the lease by as much as 40 years and then beyond what the end of the lease would have already been. Uh, and then to reduce rents by as much as appropriate. So to, to give a rough uh, example of that, let's just say it would have cost uh, 500 pounds to rebuild uh, a house in London, which would have been at the low end of a relatively modest home, but say that's what it was. Uh, what the fire court could do would be then to add 40 years on to the tenant's term and reduce the rent by, say, 12 or 13 pounds per year, uh, which if you do the math, then gives the tenant over the course of granted 40 years, but gives the tenant essentially or pays the tenant back over the course of that time for the investment that they've had in having to rebuild this house. And then at the end of it, the landlord gets back a house, which is a better built building than the one that they had rented years before. And to give you, we mentioned it in terms of 100 pounds in 17th century England, but I think 100 pounds in, in, in the 1660s in terms of U.S. dollars today is probably about $25,000. So uh, given the, the costs, we're talking about very significant costs in terms of the overall economy. So how did tell us about the fire court itself? Who were the judges on it? What was its procedure? So this is a, another innovation of Parliament. Uh, there were at that time 12 common law judges. There were three common law courts. There were four judges appointed to each court. So the court was constituted of the 12 common law judges. And uh, any three of them could sit as a court. In a few cases, more would sit. Uh, seven of them them would sit if it were an appellate, if there were an appeal from uh, an, an original judgment. There were very few appeals, but uh, seven would sit. But ordinarily, three would sit, uh, and they would take turns doing so. All of the judges uh, sat, although some of them sat more frequently than others did. The procedures themselves uh, were radical in a way. Um, uh, you know, if you think about, if you know something about 17th century English legal history, it was not a, uh, a procedure-friendly time. It was very complicated, very intricate, uh, uh, very rigidly enforced procedures. Yet in the statute, 
Parliament specifically ordered that the proceedings go forward summarily and without the usual uh, form of law so that the procedures usually uh, the fire court would hear somewhere between three and five cases every single day when it sat uh, and uh, and obviously would do so in a much more summary fashion than was possible in a common law court or certainly in equity, which was even more backed up and took longer to get through. Well, you've talked about the 17th century uh, in terms of the procedures being complex. But in our terms, again, if we look at what we're dealing with today, uh, you mentioned the backup. We have calendaring pressures that are uh, uh, probably is an analogy just as great in terms of the backup cases taking three, four, five years. We have those kind of calendaring pressures, and we have a huge amount of complexity uh, and a great deal of your work. And I think one of the things that's brought you to this is a great deal of your work in civil procedure in the United States has been how to make civil procedure more efficient. Uh, to resolve disputes in the ordinary course. And what we're now going through with COVID is more than the ordinary course, and what London was going through in the 17th century was more than the ordinary course. And so this was dealt with by setting up the special court with different substantive rules and with different procedures. So how was the court able to handle that volume? You say three cases a day and five cases a day. How, how could a court work at that kind of volume to resolve this? Well, so one of the ways in which it did was that, and, and this emerges over time, uh, but as you would expect, um, a couple of things happened. First of all, um, it quickly becomes clear that the fire court is not necessarily a landlord's court or a tenant's court. You know, it's not necessarily one side or the other that it's favoring. It's trying to rebuild the city of London. That is its principal focus. So over time, the way in which the fire court operates becomes better known to the parties that are involved. And so as you see over the course of the roughly 15 or 1600 cases that the fire court decides, um, more and more of them start to settle. Uh, and so the records indicate that the parties either come to court with an agreement or at least very quickly can be brought to agreement uh, before the judges. Not as many of the cases are uh, what you described today as adjudicated or arbitrated, uh, where the parties don't come to decision. So I think that's a really important factor in this case or in how the court ends up being successful in processing cases quickly. The other is the development of a professional bar. Uh, you did not have to have a lawyer to appear before the fire court. Indeed, many people did not have a lawyer. But over time, a professional bar develops. And I think that that bar, from all indications, uh, helps to bring the parties to a realistic position quickly so that um, either when they get to the fire court, they have pretty much come to agreement, or a lot of cases seem to settle in the shadow of the fire court and do so because the lawyers can tell their clients, you know, this is what you're going to get from the fire court. Now, let's just settle this thing. Well, let's uh, think for a minute about the, about the, if we can call them, the principles of resolution that, that are involved here. Moving from a zero-sum game to a court that had discretion to act summarily uh, gave, us, in terms of negotiation, that apparently established an incentive to resolve matters more quickly than following the ordinary legal rules of the common law or equity. Is that why it worked? Because people were concerned about the discretion of the of, of the court uh, to make decisions on basis that it, that it wasn't entirely clear uh, what what would be done. So they had to deal with a different level of risk in order in order to resolve their disputes. 
I've always wondered about that, uh, and I need to do some more digging into the records to get a better sense of how unpredictable, if you will, uh, the fire court was. But but I think as a general proposition, that's right. Uh, one of the things that brings people to a negotiated settlement is uncertainty, and you were never completely certain if you were to uh, let's say, propose a more outlandish solution than your uh, opponent would before the fire court. I don't think you could be secure that the fire court was going to accept your position over the others. Um, again, they were not trying to enforce the rights as they already existed under the contract. They were trying to rebuild the city of London, and they were going to do whatever made the most sense to rebuild the city of London. You know, that's really interesting in terms of how resolution is approached, because just compare that, and I know you've done so much work in this in general civil procedure, but compare that today to a negotiation, for example, when a motion for summary judgment is filed. The arguments revolve around what is the court going to decide based on the, based on the law. And one party's going to win, one party's going to lose. And if there's a negotiation, it's over an estimate of what the legal result is going to be. But here you had a court that wasn't working on those principles. The principles they were working on were, were that whatever happens has to be proportionate and has to appear to us and be fair. And so if you come in with something that's not, we have the power uh, to essentially do something you won't like. And apparently that context for resolving the dispute uh, led to more efficient results. You know, I think it did. And I've always remarked, if you were to imagine today in the 21st century, a judge saying, OK, I hear that here's the contract. I'm just going to rip it up and rewrite it in a way that you know, that is more socially beneficial. It would be unimaginable to, to think that that would be a, a, a power that a judge would have. And yet that is exactly the power that the fire judges had. They could rip up a contract and and, you know, with the social benefit of rebuilding London in mind, rewrite it in a way that made sense. We've been talking about this and saying that what happened there might be unimaginable or is unimaginable today is a good time to pause and talk about your ability as a listener to receive MCLA credit for this podcast. You can receive that MCLA credit through the Daily Journal, and we'll now take a brief break so that you can hear how that MCLA credit uh, can be obtained. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. With a constant flow of information about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's become hard to keep up. That's why we've put all our coronavirus-related content into one place. Now you can find COVID appellate cases, news articles, guest columns, and episodes of The Weekly Brief on our new page. Stay up to date by visiting dailyjournal.com COVID. We're now back from the break, and we've been talking about the difference in procedures between the fire court, the laws that were changed uh, by the British Parliament in establishing uh, this fire court. So you say they were able to do three to five cases a day uh, because in many cases the settlements came. But in many ways, the court, you've commented before in other contexts, has acted 
almost less like an adjudicatory court, though it had adjudicatory powers, than as a court of mediation and, and spoke to parties as they appeared to talk about what was fair and what would work. So it really almost became a kind of mediation process in front of a mediator that had the power to impose if reasonable agreements were not made. I think that's the best description of what the fire court evolves into. Uh, it involves into, in essence, a mediation service. Now, again, many of the parties came to the court with agreements already worked out. And I suspect that for various reasons, they wanted the judgment so that they could be clear about exactly what their obligations were going forward. Uh, but if they didn't come to the court with the solution already worked out, they at least came to the court. And this is reflected in so many of the records with proposals. Uh, where one side would say, this is what I'm willing to do, and the other side would say, well, that's what I'm willing to do. And so they, there was already a starting point for the negotiation. And yes, what the court did in essence was to treat, as the records often said, uh, or to mediate between the parties until they would come to an agreement that was somewhere in the middle. So what we're talking about in terms of resolving disputes it is the, here the there's an establishment of a system that made the mediation more effective because the parameters of possible outcomes uh, were changed in a way that provided incentives to settle rather than take the risk of the, of the summary procedure. What was the procedure? What actually happened in court? Were there papers filed? Were there motions? Were there long arguments? Were there major appearances by parties? So uh, the records don't reflect much of that, uh, the sort of uh, the, the specifics of procedure. Um, what would happen is that you would uh, file a petition. We, we know this from what is available. You'd file a petition and then the court would issue a summons. Uh, in a few instances, the party wouldn't show up the first time. So the court would warn the party, as it was said back then, but would in essence order the party to come the second time. And almost always the, the party came the second time. Uh, um, and, and then um, there were no motions that were filed that I could ever determine in any of the records that I read, read them all. I uh, did not see any references to motions. Um, the parties would speak. Uh, their lawyers would speak on behalf of the parties, of course, when necessary. And then once in a while, witnesses would be called because there might be some factual disputes about exactly what the property boundaries were, how much land had been taken for widening of the street or whatever it would be. So once in a while, witnesses would also be called. Um, builders might be called for their opinions on how much it would cost to reconstruct a property. But, um, you know, again, there would be uh, witnesses in open court and, and then there would be a judgment. So there was no room for motions. There were appeals that were allowed, but you know, over the course of the um, time that the court operated, there were only eight appeals over 1,600 cases. And in every single one of those appeals, uh, the judgment was affirmed, which probably um, was a pretty good signal that um, not to appeal. Well, but one of the reasons you can talk about the records, which we should talk more about, is there were extensive records kept. There were scriveners, reporters who kept records, and those records have been bound and engrossed in volumes. And today, anyone who wants to see those records, as you have, can go to the appropriate location in the archives in London and see the actual, essentially, transcriptions of the procedures before the trial court. So we know pretty well there may have been some things that weren't transcribed, but really from the records, you've been able to do this research because we really can know pretty well what happened in the court. Uh, and, and then there's the question of costs. Uh, 
It was, at this time, judges received a portion of their income from fees that were charged when their judges when they when they judged. But did the judges take fees as they ordinarily would have done as common law judges for sitting on this court? No, you know it's one of the remarkable features of this court that the common law judges were civic minded. I think they also recognized the importance of this work to the rebuilding of London. They charged no fees. Uh, for uh, sitting in these cases. Now, the scriveners uh, and uh, the people who supply the paper and so forth, there are records there. Of course, they were compensated. The judges themselves, however, received no fees. The only thing actually that they received by way of compensation, if you want to uh, call it that, is that uh, at the end of the process, uh, portraits, the City of London ordered that portraits be made, painted of each of the judges, a, a, a total of 22 over the course of the time the court sat. Some of the judges died and were replaced. But uh, so there are these 22 portraits of the fire court judges, some of which were destroyed in the fire in the in the bombing uh, of London in the, in the Blitz in 1940. Others of which had fallen into um, were so decrepit they had to be thrown out. But I believe 14 of the portraits uh, are still available in various locations in London today. But even when you mentioned the cost of scriveners and other things, the, the parties didn't have to cover that, did they? They were covered by the city of London or, or other. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. The, the parties uh, presumably would have borne, borne the cost of their lawyers if they chose to have one, uh, but uh, none of the awards uh, uh, or the judgments of the court required the payment of any costs. So this is a, a, a except to the cost of whatever the cost of the, of the council might have been of the barristers to appear. Uh, there was no cost to this uh, to the party who appeared. That's right. And I should say on appeal, sometimes they, the, the few appeals, they would award costs on appeal. I, I should have mentioned that. But otherwise, no cost. That's correct. But but compared to our, I mean, we, there were no filing fees. Uh, there, were, there were no costs to go to this court aside from what were privately uh, engaged uh, uh, by counsel. And so who were, you know, we like try to like to make these things come alive in terms of history. Uh, Emerson famously said, there's no history, there's only biography. So who were the people? Do we know who it was in Parliament, who it was in the legal profession, who took the lead and, and bore responsibility for developing this remarkable process? You know, that part is uh, missing somewhat from the history. We have some indications in the records about uh, certainly the City of London, the, the senior officials in the City of London, the Council of Aldermen, the Mayor of London, were much involved in trying to uh, push Parliament to pass this legislation. It almost didn't. Uh, and, and that just has to do with Parliament. Um, uh, I guess as they're sort of, you know, as you said, there are divisions. There were divisions then, there are divisions now. But one of the great divisions in London or in England at that time, which still exists today, is this division between the country and London. And so, of course, much of Parliament represented the country, and there was real reluctance to pass this uh, legislation initially. And it's only by the intervention of some of the city figures and by Charles himself, who really needs London rebuilt, that Parliament ultimately uh, agrees to pass this legislation. So they were certainly behind it. The person who wrote the legislation, we don't know. The speculation is that it was likely Matthew Hale, who was at that time the uh, chief baron of the exchequer. He would go on to become the uh, Lord Chief Justice of, I believe it's, I've forgotten, I, I, I think it's the King's Bench, um, uh, but certainly the leading legal figure of the time. Uh, most people think that he had a hand to play in the drafting of this legislation. 
Tell us a bit about Hale. I mean, again, we, we know the current lawyers, the current justices and judges we have today, who we know well. There were equivalent people in the 17th century. Hale was one of them. Uh, what, what, what general role did Hale play in, in, in the general development of the common law here? So Hale, again, is, is often said to be the um, most significant figure in the English common law between Cook in the early uh, 16th, 17th century and Blackstone, uh, Blackstone and Mansfield by the end of the 18th century. Uh, he certainly has that reputation, largely because of some books that he wrote about the common law, which were not published until after he had died. But at the time, his reputation was as a completely honest and fair person, uh, which was unusual. He had become a judge during the time of Cromwell, uh, although during the time of Cromwell, he made quite clear that he was a royalist. Um, but he was such a leading figure in the law that everybody recognized that he was someone who deserved to be a judge because he was, he was scrupulously fair. Uh, and the same thing, of course, continues to be true. Once Charles is um, is restored to the throne, uh, everybody continues to look to Hale as probably being the leading legal figure in England at the time. Yeah. It's interesting to see historical patterns in terms of people and other repeat themselves. I mean, I, I was thinking when you were talking about the split between the country and London, is it exactly the same split that played out in the, in the Brexit election? Only in the course of the seventeenth, in the seventeenth century, fire court issue, it was it was London that that uh, prevailed and got what it wanted. Of course, in Brexit, it was quite different. But regardless of one thinks about the outcome, it's interesting that the historical divisions politically uh, persist on for 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 centuries. To give us a, a, a better sense of what happened, is there a particular case? that was in the fire court that you could talk about so we could see how it worked out in an, in, in an individual case? Well, you know, so there are, uh, the problem is that there's almost no case that is um, a perfect representative of what they did because every case was on its own bottom. I'll give you one example of just one case because it's, it's a fun case for me. Uh, a, a fellow by the name of Praise God Barebone, that was his first name was Praise God, his last name was Barebone, um, who was a tenant uh, and a leather seller. He was also an important political figure during Cromwell's time, uh, had been one of the leaders, if he was called a fifth monarch, he'd been one of the leaders of the, uh, uh, the Commonwealth forces. He strongly opposed the restoration of Charles. He spent two years in the Tower of London for treason uh, before finally being released. But, you know, he is released and uh, he owns one of the last properties that is burned down in the city of London on Fleet Street, almost where the, the, the um, fire peters out. Uh, it's his property that he is renting at the time. Uh, so just to give you an idea, he's almost 70 years old at the time. Uh, he, he brings his case into the court. Um, and uh, what he does is he had uh, he'd leased a premises for 14 years at an annual rent of 40 pounds a year, which was maybe fairly standard sort of a rent at the time. Uh, uh, he leases it from a widow. Uh, and what happens is that um, uh, the Part, or excuse me, the fire court agrees that uh, what he should do is he should be get he should be given an extra forty one years, and his lease should be dropped to uh, fifteen pounds. Um, a year for the next 41 years. So in essence, basically uh, giving him, um, you know, 25 pounds a year over the next 40 years with which uh, he can, um, uh, he can rebuild the property. And I should say he is at this time, 
70 years old. He is not going to live for the length of this lease. But what it shows is that it's extremely important in terms of holding wealth uh, that you have a lease that, of course, can then be passed on uh, to your children or whomever, and that they can then make money off of the lease by subleasing it from there. Well, what's so interesting is that this is a result that looks not to the past, but to the future. Another difference in how the fire court functioned. I mean, in our in our legal system, people will be litigating over compensatory damages about damage in the past. And here you're talking about a settlement that didn't involve damages in the past. I mean, it was the background of who was hurt, but involved what kind of solution of new investment and new terms can be developed to build for the future. In addition to everything else, that's just a fundamentally different perspective on how legal disputes in this case are, are resolved. I think that's right. Usually what the fire court would in fact do is it would forgive uh, any arrears of rent from the date of the fire until roughly about a, usually a year after the judgment, uh, during which time they would expect the property to be rebuilt. Uh, so in terms of compensation or past damages, the landlords almost always didn't get that. Uh, and then going forward, you know, it, it was a, a, a Solomonic or a split the baby kind of a situation where the landlords would get something, um, but the tenants would also get a sufficient reduction in rent to justify their rebuilding of their properties. Yeah, and this plays itself out. You've talked about the, the one case. Uh, but And you've talked about the landlord's ability to recover or, or to be obligated. But it was quite clear if the common law applied. I mean, it, it was quite clear without this court, the common law rule was, was pretty absolute, wasn't it? That whoever was tenant in possession, regardless of anything, not just fire, but war, anything else, that that tenant had the complete obligation to rebuild without any modification in the lease. It was simply the tenant in possession's obligation, period. That's right. So, you know, today we would talk about a force majeure clause or something along those lines that, that where we might uh, forgive a situation like that. There was uh, a case law at the time in the 17th century that when you entered into a covenant to rebuild, it didn't matter what the reason was why your property was destroyed, uh, that you were required to rebuild. So there was nothing equivalent to a force majeure that would have allowed the tenants to escape their responsibility under this rebuilding covenant. And this was the Paradise versus Jane case that just established that principle as, 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 as absolute in terms of, of the tenants' uh, obligation to rebuild. That's right. Yeah, this was a, a case that had been decided actually during the uh, Commonwealth years, but that is absolutely, that's correct. Uh, there was a, a common law case not that far in the past where um, it was actually during a time of war, uh, the Civil War, and a tenant had, uh, had had his property destroyed during the fighting and said, I shouldn't have to pay for the t period of time when my land was occupied and, and partially destroyed. And the common law court said, no, you entered into a covenant. And the covenant said you have to repair and rebuild and you have to pay your lease during the meantime. So, no, we're not going to forgive you. Now, you've spoken about a case with uh, essentially an in individual tenant and a 40-year extension, but there were other cases that involved subtenants, uh, especially in the, in the livery uh, group uh, for haberdashers, uh, where there were subtenants. Uh, and the negotiation had to take place among more than one party where there were groups of landlord and subtenants. And there were other cases where, where that was worked out with extraordinary extensions of, of, of the lease, weren't, weren't there? 
Yes, there were. Uh, some of the cases uh, actually would go as long as uh, 61 years. That's actually the longest that I saw a lease being extended. Uh, it's not clear. Eventually, uh, Parliament had to reenact the uh, the fire court legislation they had a sunset provision and they hadn't finished their work by then. So uh, eventually Congress, or I'm sorry, <laughs> Parliament uh, does give the court this additional power to extend leases by up to 61 years. And I think one of the reasons it did was there were a few, just a handful of cases uh, before they enjoyed that power where they still only had a 40 year power to extend leases where the court actually extended the lease further um, out as far as 61 years in the context of livery companies or other charities. Uh, those tended to have been agreed on by the parties, uh, but they also appeared also to have been useful in bringing the parties together. So Parliament ultimately just gives the court the authority almost after the fact to extend leases out to 61 years. Now, uh, you've mentioned the Sunset Clause. That, that becomes very important. I mean, the original statute passed by Parliament had an absolute Sunset Clause. Did it not at the end? It was supposed to end in 1668, run from 1667 through 1668, and then end in 16, at the end of 1668? That's right. Uh, so uh, the legislation is passed in February 1667 and written into the legislation is that the court will go out of existence on December 31st, 1668. And despite the heroic efforts of the fire court in December of 1668 to finish it, to get rid of its backlog, um, it does not. It, there are still cases pending uh, as of uh, December 31st, 1668 that they cannot hear because their jurisdiction has been terminated. Well, two things to say about that, but there is, in terms of when we talk about the importance of, of setting a framework for resolving disputes, there were an extraordinary number of cases resolved in December of 1668, uh, weren't there? When people faced the sunset, they didn't know it was going to be continued, and so the sunset clause uh, moved, gave people an incentive to get this resolved before, before the statute ended, so there were a large number of cases resolved in, in December of, of, of that year of 1668. That's right. The single day record for the fire court was, uh, I think it was December 14th, 1668, where they resolved, uh, I believe it was 28 cases. And I think on the 22nd of December, they resolved 26. So just on those two days alone, uh, well over 50 cases were decided. And if you look at the rest of December, it was similarly almost a, a factory uh, approach to getting these cases resolved. But again, they still didn't quite make it. They missed. Well, they, but in terms of, of what we're talking about in general, which are what are the principles of establishing a system uh, when there's large financial, mass financial loss like this, then in addition to other things we've talked about, the summary substantive power of the court, uh, the procedure that's used, uh, the deadline becomes important as part of the concept of moving forward resolution because facing a deadline of being able to use this court, everyone stepped up to try and get stuff, or a large number of people did anyway, stepped up to get stuff done before the deadline. So having a deadline in terms of providing extraordinary measures is an important uh, principle of, 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 of obtaining those resolutions. I, isn't that one of the things we learned from the, from the 1668 experience? I think we do. Uh, and, you know, it's a lesson we still know today. Uh, one of the ways in which you can, of course, 
most focused parties on resolving something is to give them an early firm deadline. It's a classic case management technique today, and it's something that Parliament invoked to good effect. I'm not sure necessarily consciously. I don't know whether they did it for that reason, Uh, but nonetheless, uh, they invoked it to very good effect, and it really did bring the bulk of the cases to resolution quite quickly. It forced the part that Parliament needed London rebuilt, it it decided, uh, and it wouldn't have done to have linked to have given the court a, a jurisdiction of five or six years so that it could languish along. Um, they wanted this done quickly, and so they gave it a very short sunset provision. Well, we've been talking about something that is both old news and new news. Uh, the old news, if we can call it that, how 17th century uh, England uh, dealt with a mass financial catastrophe. That, of course, is our own mass financial ca- catastrophe, is very much in the daily news uh, today covered by the Daily Journal, but the Daily Journal not only covers the COVID issues, the Daily Journal covers, as a regular matter, a wide variety of news. Let's take another break and hear about some of the stories the Daily Journal is currently reporting. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by the Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of November 2nd. Elections large and local have dominated headlines this week. As of Thursday, Los Angeles DA challenger George Gascon had a commanding lead over incumbent Jackie Lacey. If Gascon wins, he'll be the latest district attorney in California to depart from the traditional law and order approach to favor one aimed at criminal prosecution reform. In Southern California judge races, prosecutors led the pack. Deputy DA David Berger, who won his seat over administrative law judge Clint McKay, said these DA victories are an indication voters see prosecutors as pursuers of justice rather than pursuers of victory. And in Northern California, elected judges showed a diversity of legal background. Alameda County's Elena Condes was a criminal defense attorney, Stanislaus County's John Main was a deputy district attorney, and Santa Cruz County's Elena de la Pena was assistant county counsel. After six years of the bar requiring law students to complete six units of clinical hours, law firms say new graduates are coming out more prepared to practice law. Attorney Wiley Aitken said, compared to when he first graduated, he's able to work with new hires on the real nuances of law, whereas in his first job, partners and others would spend time teaching basics like filing and drafting. However, there's room for improvement. Ariel Newman, the hiring partner at Bird Manella, said law students could use more experience in the courtroom, both with handling juries and judges and with crafting arguments. Two former DLA Piper partners have formed a new law firm in San Diego focused on litigation with a client-focused approach. Robert Brownlee and Ryan Hansen spent a combined 44 years at DLA, and they said the newly formed Brownlee-Hansen LLP is targeting small to medium-sized companies, often overlooked by large law firms. Hansen said one of the benefits of the new firm is that they can fully partner with their clients to create deep knowledge of their business and constantly work with them, something he said they were cheated out of at DLA Piper. The firm will focus on business, corporate, agribusiness, and agricultural disputes, but is looking to expand its offerings in the future. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're now back. We've been talking about the fire court, the importance of deadlines, but there are other things that are interesting about the court. I, I was taken to learn about, in terms of participation, something we don't ordinarily think of, an issue in the 17th century, participation of women as as litigants in, in, in the court. There were a, a fair number of property interests 
and uh, in, in which women were the principals uh, who appeared not just as a formal matter by filing papers, but personally appeared in the fire court as well, weren't there? There were. Um, I, you know, I, I've never done an exact estimate, but I would guess somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% perhaps of the properties uh, involved interests held principally by women. They could have had it from, as an inheritance from uh, a family member. Uh, they could have had a dowager interest in it when their husband had died and they were holding the property on behalf of their children who were still minors. Um, there were a range of ways in which uh, women were at that point either landlords or tenants, and they were on both sides. Uh, landlords and tenants, um, but they would appear in these fire court records. Now, often if um, uh, if they were, um, if it was an interest that they had uh, where they had now remarried, they brought some property into a marriage, often you would see their husbands representing them in the fire court, but not always. And if uh, they didn't have a present husband, Yes, these women would appear uh, and they would show up and they would represent themselves. And from what I can tell, um, I have no idea what the attitude of the judges was. I suppose we could well imagine what it was. But, you know, in terms of the resolutions themselves, um, they would um, give what looked like a fair resolution and wouldn't necessarily uh, the gender of the parties before them didn't seem to affect anything very much. The case that I described involving Praise God Barebone, it was a widow who was the landlord on the other side of that case. And she showed up alone and without counsel uh, to represent her interests. Well, what's so interesting about this in terms of 17th century, you talk about, you know, we can imagine what attitudes may, may have been. But here in the 17th century, it, 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 Parliament deals with a fundamental issue. It has this problem. It has this issue to be resolved. It wants the city to be rebuilt. And in order to get disputes resolved, analogous to the kind of disputes we have today, it passes a law, the, 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 uh, the fire court law, that on its face says the court shall function without the formalities of process of courts of law or equity. Uh, it uses a Latin phrase that I would have difficulty pronouncing, sin forma et figura judici. But it expressly commands this court to not follow normal procedures in order to resolve these legal disputes. Is the lesson there that there are times that we face issues where the existing legal processes, in fact, are counterproductive to obtaining a proper, an appropriate result? Yes, I think that's the the, the, the simple answer. Um, you know, obviously, every procedural system is set up to address the norm and the way in which we want that normal case to be addressed. But it, there are always the cases for which that normal process uh, holds the case back or makes it more difficult for that resolution to occur. And uh, certainly in 17th century England, the normal processes of law and equity, just procedurally, aside from the substantive content of the law, uh, would have meant that these cases would have dragged on for some time before there could have been an ordinary resolution. And that just was not in the interests of the country, that it be five or six years before London is rebuilt while we're arguing about the details of these leases. It needed to be done quicker than that. And in practical terms, I mean, this worked. London was rebuilt in what amounts to record time. Uh, and it was not only rebuilt in the wood that it burned, but it was rebuilt in brick and with some different uh, uh, usage requirements as well. So the fire court's goal of rebuilding London and having to deal with legal procedures to achieve that goal was by any measure successful, wasn't it? 
I think you'd have to say it was. Uh, you know, it's difficult. You cannot find an historian of the period who doesn't recognize the significance of the fire courts to the relatively quick rebuilding of London. It still takes about 10 years for London to re be rebuilt. I hadn't mentioned before, but uh, best estimates are about 13,000 buildings, 13,500 buildings had been burned down in addition to 87 churches, um, guild halls, warehouses, the customs house. It, it, London was just devastating. So it's not going to be rebuilt in a day. And indeed, the rebuilding of London is its own story because of the shortages of bricks and workmen and all sorts of it and other things. But within about to 10 years, and largely because of the offices of the fire court cutting through, establishing who's going to rebuild and giving them roughly about a year to get it going or, or to get it rebuilt, um, London is largely rebuilt by 1676, which is the last of the fire court cases. And, you know, you mentioned the churches. One of the churches that was, that was uh, destroyed, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral was burned down, which provided the base later, though he may not have done it so quickly, for Christopher Wren uh, to redesign and, and be the architect for the rebuilding of, of, of St. Paul's. So the London we see today, uh, done during the rebuilding after the Great Fire, uh, very much goes back to the success of the fire court. I've been thinking of what, I've been thinking of what modern analogies, given the given the uh, what we face today in terms of the complexity of legal procedures, are there any analogies to what we have done aside from what might additionally be done in the specific COVID example? And I don't know if you'd agree, but I, I thought that maybe our, our expansive use of MDL procedures to deal with complex litigation, MDL procedures in the federal court, is a kind of analogy to what the fire court did. I mean, we, we combine thousands of cases. Uh, we give judges authority to manage those cases, uh, to get settlement of those cases. A, a very large percentage of everything in federal courts is now an MDL. So I just wondered about your thoughts on that. We're wrestling with the same kind of calendaring and procedural problems. You've dealt extensively in class actions and other things. But is what we've developed in MDL procedures a way of dealing with the same sort of problems that the fire court tried to deal with? You know, in some ways, uh, in some ways not. And of course, the main way in which it's not is that the fire courts still remain committed to individual justice in each case. So in that sense, it, it, you're right, it creates a court into which all of these related disputes are funneled. Uh, so in that sense, it looks something like an MDL. But then the court is committed to resolving each dispute on an individual basis. So that, you know, that doesn't look as much like uh, the MDL process. But then the other way in which it does look like the MDL process says, Howard, is exactly what you had said before. Um, it, this is sometimes a criticism of the MDL process, uh, but this very inventive spirit about the procedures that will be used to try to bring this case to the ground. And you think, for instance, about Judge Polster and the, um, and the MDL litigation involving opioid litigation in the Northern District of Ohio, where he more or less said, look, we can do this the ordinary way uh, and with ordinary procedures, or we can try to do something much more imaginative to try to solve the problem of opioid litigation in the or opioid addiction in the United States. Um, and he tried very hard to, in essence, do something kind of like the fire court, try to imagine some off book procedures. I, you know, he failed, unfortunately, because again, he just didn't have the backing of a piece of legislation saying you can do this. Um, but MDL judges generally do have this kind of attitude about let's try to find a set of procedures that work. But essentially, though, though he may not have succeeded, he raised the issue about whether he didn't have the summary power, but about whether if he'd had summary power, uh, 
equivalent to the fire court. He might have been able to to do more. But the interesting thing about the fire court, in terms of its success, uh, the issues were were between private parties. They were resolved between private parties. But under the statute, they were resolved between private parties in a way that supported the public interest. Uh, and that is what makes what the Parliament was able to do in 17th century London. And we may look back on 17th century London as an age that did not have the same values or sophistication that we have. But you have to wonder and ask the real question, why were the legal leaders in Parliament and in the bar uh, able in 17th century London to successfully deal with this very difficult issue in ways that we are having even more difficulty to grapple with? We've been talking about that with, with Professor Jay Tidmarsh at the University of Notre Dame Law School, whose remarkable research on this, widely admired in England as well as the United States, has led people to focus on these kind of procedures in terms of leading to more efficient justice in the public interest. Thank you so much, Professor Tidmarsh, for being with us. We're really honored that you took the time in the midst of your research to spend this time with us and also very grateful and, and, and admire the, the remarkable historical work you've done in terms of bringing these historical examples uh, to us and, and the challenging questions that they face. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure.